Fellow knowledge seekers, I hope you've had a chance to check out the Waterline podcast on iTunes and your Android app. And if you checked it out, please give it a good rating. It's a wonderful podcast. Water is one of the biggest driving forces of life on Earth. It's been incredibly influential in human history from the time we were hunter-gatherers looking for fresh sources of water to the uh, uh, agricultural revolution and building bigger and bigger cities eventually having plumbing uh, the way that it changed sanitation uh, irrigation and what is the what's the future of water are we going to have enough of this stuff how can we make more clean fresh water i just listened to a very interesting episode alchemy turning milk into water sustainable water management this episode is all about this very candid conversation about water coffee industrial practices sustainable value chain and social responsibilities with uh this man carlos uh galli who Uh, whose job it is to make sure that the biggest food and beverage company in the world is leading a healthy and sustainable lifestyle. Incredibly important stuff. You guys are into science. You guys are into learning, caring about the world, caring about our future. This podcast is for you. Check out the Waterline podcast on iTunes and your Android app. Fantastic episode for you today. I stopped through Chicago to talk to Nick Epley about his book Mindwise, which has been out for a bit and is now just out on paperback. Uh, just a few days ago, came out on paperback. So make sure and check it out. It's a wonderful book. You're going to hear all about it in a few, and then you're going to want to get it. And Nick is an amazing conversationalist. Uh, <laughs> so I was almost intimidated by how good he was. At, um, at talking and making conversation, but because he was so good at talking and making conversation, it still all flowed very well. And this is just a fantastic episode. So uh, enjoy and share with everyone you know. Thank you. Are we? Yes. Where are we? Here. Why are we here? Not entirely clear. We are misfits thrust into existence by random chance with no hints at all as to how we're supposed to make sense of it all. It's immensely bizarre. Here we are. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Here We Are podcast. My name's Shane Moss, and I am here today with Nick Epley, who is a professor of behavioral science at the University of Chicago Booth School of Business. I'm here. I uh, Thanks for joining me, Nick, by yeah. the way. I, I came in from um, Milwaukee. I was, I was working in Appleton, Wisconsin, um, mm-hmm. the lovely Appleton, mm-hmm. Wisconsin, last weekend, staying at my brother's house in Milwaukee for a couple days before going to, I'm from La Crosse, Wisconsin mm-hmm. originally. And then, um, and and so I just drove down uh, today from Chicago through the snow and the, mm-hmm. and the rain to get here. It wasn't too bad, actually. How was your commute in um, today? <laughs> so I came in on the train. Yeah, which I usually do most mornings. Yeah, it's about half an hour or so in. Meet any uh, interesting people? Did I this morning? I did not. I had to place a phone call to someone <laughs> in Ithaca, New York, this morning, and so I spent a little time talking to him. How often? Uh, 
um, do you? Because you have a bit of uh, research mm -hmm. on, and I'll let you introduce that. But yeah. why, why don't you talk a little bit about that research? And I because what I'd like to know is how often you heed your own advice. Yeah. So, th um, so this is one place where we do heed, where I do heed my own advice, um, although not 100% of the time. So what you're referring to is some research that we did that was trying to understand why strangers so routinely ignore each other. So I'm a social psychologist by training. In our research, we study mind reading. This is not magical or mystical or spooky <laughs> no variety. No crystal balls. No They're crystal so balls. Cool, there's no cards. There's no <laughs> palm reading. Um, but just the everyday kind of mind reading we do where I make inferences about your thoughts or beliefs or mm. attitudes or intentions. This is one of the things that makes our brain really unique. I actually, on a side note, I we were just you asked me what happened. I broke both of my feet hiking with my friend, and uh, his wife was with us, who is a quote unquote professional psychic. Is that right? And uh, did not <laughs> see that coming. So I think I like your style that of is, mind that reading. That is not what we do. A, a bit, no. a bit more. No, this is just the standard <laughs> social sense that we use all the time. Right. Um, and and so it was interesting to us at least if you're a social psychologist who studies this impressive capacity that we have for social engagement and social connection, to see so many cases in everyday life where people don't seem to use this ability. Mm. Why, why do we ignore each other? You look at what makes people happy in their lives. turns out social engagement is a big one. Uh, quality of people's social relationships is a strong predictor of people's happiness and well-being. And being lonely and isolated is miserable and, frankly, deadly. Uh, it's a bigger risk for uh, for mortality, or as big a risk, at least, as cigarette smoking seems to be. Uh, being lonely is bad for you. So you're scaring the crap out of yeah, me. Yeah, right you don't want to be isolated. I spend a lot of time by myself. <laughs> I'm quite comfortable with it. Yeah. I think that I'm. Uh, this is why I'm one of the many reasons why I'm interested in talking with you, is because I've been thinking that. I need to force myself to um, get well. My environment is different than a lot of yeah. people's because I have this kind of hyper stimulate. So I'm out at like a club doing comedy shows and meeting hundreds of people and talking with like other comics and stuff and wait staff and and you know have a very rich mm -hmm. um, couple of hours of social interaction and then all the rest of my life is like alone yeah. in a hotel room. Yeah. But I don't know what I like more. A lot of times I think I like the alone in the hotel room yeah. more, believe it or not. But then I sit there reading books by myself about the importance of social interaction. <laughs> I'm like, yeah. oh, no. So sorry to cut you, you should, off, but this is why it's so important to me. You should have bought the uh, audio version of the book. So somebody was at least talking to you. I me. did. I uh, did yeah. buy the audio right. version. So that was a little better. Yeah, so I like that you because you did your own. Um, I did. Uh, I I prefer people do their own. I wish people wouldn't hire someone else to. Well, I had stories about my wife in there. I couldn't have somebody else, yeah, some other guy, yeah. saying my wife and referring to yeah, my wife. That's I'm, terrible. I'm glad you went That's that direction. Okay. So, um, so let me let me tell you about the studies absolutely. we did. So uh, the question then was why, if we're so socially sophisticated, why do we so routinely sit around and ignore each other? So on the train. Every day when I come into, into Hyde Park here in, in Chicago, I see the same routine playing out over and over again. People get on the train, they'll sit down next to somebody, a perfectly delightful person sitting right there, 
And for the next 45 minutes, they will sit there and treat that person like a lampshade. Just totally ignore that person. Why do we do that? There are two possibilities. One possibility is, is sort of what you were suggesting, and that is we kind of all need some alone time. And surely we do. We all need some alone time. And maybe it's just more pleasant to sit there by yourself and not talk to this person and that engaging this person in conversation would actually be unpleasant. So maybe people are actually maximizing their well-being by not talking to this dullard sitting right next to them. The other possibility is that we're just wrong about the consequences of our social interactions. That is, we think it would be unpleasant to engage this person in conversation when in fact it would be precisely the opposite. And so to figure out which of these it actually is. I mean, we, for me, it's just kind of, um, if I'm being completely honest, it's a little bit um, scary for me. To, it's a little nerve wracking yeah, sometimes yeah, yeah. for yeah. me to, to start and talk to somebody. Yeah, absolutely. Even like, um, you know, something like a attractive girl where it's like, oh, that would be really great to go and talk. And there's no reason why I couldn't. But even that, I still have these you know, yeah. uh, nervous, tense. So, so we think that's playing into this a lot, okay. that phenomena. You're not alone in that kind of right. social anxiety. But to figure out whether people were, in fact, maximizing their well-being by not talking to this person or were wrong about the consequences of an interaction, we ran a couple of experiments. That's how we figure out the answers to things, is that we run an experiment and see what the data show. And so one experiment we ran tested whether talking to a stranger was actually uh, more uh, less pleasant than sitting in solitude, say, on the train. We also ran this in buses downtown. We ran this in cabs leaving Midway Airport. We created a, a waiting room in downtown Chicago. We've done a bunch of experiments to see if this You created generalizes. a waiting room? Well, it's a, it was a waiting room in our, in our lab downtown. Oh, yeah. okay. We just and had them wait for, for a while. Uh, what were they told they were doing there to like fill out a survey or they something were there, like Yeah, they were there for a survey, and okay. then there was a break in this experiment. Uh, and they just sat there, and there was another person in the room with them. That's what we did. Um, and so in one condition in these experiments, we asked people to either have a conversation with the person that sat, ne sat next to them. So on the train, somebody will come and sit down next to you. We asked them to try to form a connection with that person or to talk to them. In another condition, we told them to do whatever you normally do, which mostly for people on the train is to sit there and do nothing. Or we asked them um, to just sit in solitude, to just think about yourself in the day ahead, just enjoy your solitude on the commute this morning. At the end of the train ride, we had them fill out a short survey. We gave them an envelope. Inside it was a questionnaire and a $5 Starbucks gift card, just as an incentive for participating in the experiment. That's like the biggest incentive we can possibly find in the world is a $5 Starbucks gift card. <laughs> yeah. People will do anything for that. <laughs> so they did this. They, they At the end of their commute, after doing one of these three things, they took out the survey. The survey asked them uh, how pleasant your commute today was compared to normal, how happy you were, how sad you were, and how productive your commute was. We got no effects across condition, no differences at all in terms of reported productivity. Um, I'll just leave that go for, mm. for now. But what we were mainly interested in was how happy essentially people were, how positive their experience was. So we averaged these other three items together to create a single composite. And what we found was that talking to a stranger was not, in fact, unpleasant. It was those participants, the participants who we asked to engage the stranger in conversation, those people actually reported having significantly more pleasant conversation or more pleasant commute than people who 
we instructed to sit and enjoy their solitude. Mm. Talking to a stranger wasn't unpleasant. In fact, it was more pleasant than sitting there in solitude. So that doesn't seem to be it. So maybe the reason why people ignore other people is they think it'll be unpleasant. It'll be awkward. You're too nervous. You think the person might not be interesting. Um, and to figure out whether that was going on, what we did was ran another experiment. And in this experiment, we didn't ask people to actually engage the person in conversation or sit in solitude. Instead, what we asked them to do was to imagine that we had asked them to do that and to predict how happy, how sad, and how pleasant their commute would be. This doesn't measure their actual experience. This measures their expectations of their experience. Mm -hmm. And what we found there was people predicted that they would be the most happy if they just sat there in solitude. Yeah. And that they'd be the least happy if That's they talked to the stranger. Absolutely what I would have. Yeah. Predict well, I mean, setting aside my uh, knowledge of having read a few things yeah. before. But but yeah. yeah, that's I mean, even still, I mean I I I, I might uh, I might I still feel like maybe I'm an outlier in this regard. But uh um, Well you're not an outlier based on our averages. Right. Um, so our averages were uh, were that people were precisely wrong mm. about the consequences of interaction. They thought they'd be happier keeping to themselves. In fact, they were happier talking to the stranger. So they got it exactly backwards. Mm. And so one question comes up then is why does that happen? Right? Why is it? it, it not, not so much why is it that talking to a stranger is pleasant. There are lots of reasons for that. Um, but why is it that we're wrong about the consequences of interaction? And there... Uh, we also thought there were at least two possibilities. So one possibility is what you suggested. That is, there's some anxiety to starting a conversation. Where does that anxiety come from? What are you afraid of when you approach somebody to talk to them? What makes you anxious? Um, um, so there's a lot of things. So first off, I mean, I do talk to strangers a lot of times after a show. So people, I hang out afterwards. Sometimes I'm selling people crap, which makes me incredibly uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. But um, so especially recently, I haven't been because I'm on crutches. So I'm not dealing with selling people stuff and just thanking people mm -hmm. afterwards. And, and you know, uh, your book helped inspire some. Uh -huh. I've been I've been trying to test out some uh -huh. of uh, some of your things. I've been trying to push myself to be a bit more social. Yeah. I mean, your book is not the first one. I mean. It, it does seem like the evidence is pretty clear that um, I'm I'm probably spending too much time by myself. Uh -huh. But um, so strangers approaching me, I don't always enjoy that much. Is I like meeting people after the show and having um, regular conversations with them. But there's a there's a few things. One, sometimes people are too nervous um, to talk to me, and that makes for awkward. Uh, situation. Uh, two, sometimes people are like um, awkwardly avoiding me because maybe they were offended by something yeah. or something like that. Um, three, sometimes people want to share like a joke with me. That's always a horrible joke off the internet, usually like horrifically racist or something <laughs> like that. And I, I, I really don't want to hear it, yeah. but I understand that they're trying to connect uh -huh. and I'm still trying to like humor yeah. them. And, and, but it puts me in a really uncomfortable um, position. And like, I feel like the people that I would like to talk to um, often end up uh, 
being like, oh, I'm not going to bother him or something like that. Uh-huh. It, it's um, it's often <laughs> it's often the people that I don't really because they've had too much to drink. So they're like, oh, I'll go up and talk to this uh-huh. guy. But now I'd probably rather not talk to this person. So so I have this kind of hyper simulated um, social life, but with like the strain. It's the strangest thing. So my interaction with strangers is. Um, uh, and then sometimes there's like girls hitting them on me afterwards, which that's that's really nice and everything. But I'm kind of shy uh, when uh-huh. it comes to that can make me uncomfortable. Sometimes when people are um, too complimentary, that will make me uncomfortable. Yeah. But these are all these are all after a conversation right. has started. The question is, there's somebody on the other side of the room, or somebody sits down next to you. What right, would why wouldn't right, you right, talk right. to them? Um, I mean that's why would you like. You mean just responding like how I feel or or what? I I mean, I think that possibly there's um, some evolutionary reasons about approaching um, strangers in a bit of a fear Mm -hmm. there of an outgroup. But I don't know. These aren't really outgroups, right? So on the train, I mean, you're coming from the same town. Right. They're not part of your social network, but they're also not quite properly identified as outgroups. They're strangers. I'll tell you why. Um, because a conversation like this, like we're having right now, if I knew I was going to have a conversation like this with somebody, I would have no worries in yeah. the world. Yeah. Um, and, and that would be great. Let's, let's, you know, talk about life. Let's talk about something. Yeah. Um, I have a very, very, very hard time making small talk uh-huh. and, um, and say things like, uh, you put me on crutches, you know, which I'm on right now and I'm, and people are asking they're asking me the same questions all the yeah, time right. about about the um you know making the same jokes and then i when i do talk to strangers i try to not let them know that i'm a comedian i try to talk to them so i'm always like hesitant to ask them what they do because then they'll ask me what i do and then when they find out i'm a comedian they want me to tell them a joke or something and it's just not the right context and it <laughs> makes me uncomfortable and i so I feel like I can't have like a regular conversation huh. with a lot of okay. strangers. Okay. So that's certainly one possibility that uh, that we considered, which is that once you start a conversation, there's some fear that it will go badly, right? That either the person will ask you awkward questions that you don't feel comfortable with or, you know, that uh, you remember the one time when it was really miserable and unpleasant uh, and, and maybe that. Uh, maybe that memory biases your prediction of of what this conversation mm. would be like. I also or, think I don't give people enough credit um, is a is a big thing yep. that I've learned about myself over the last few years. I've really been trying to work on that. That is, you underestimate how interesting other people are. Yeah, how interesting, or how much I might have in common with them, or how yeah. uh, I, I feel like a lot of my beliefs are outside of kind of um, social norms. Uh, like I like hanging out with comics and talking. Where you know we talk a lot about kind of existential things, uh-huh. that uh-huh. sort of stuff. And I, I've kind of always um, gone against a lot of social trends in my life. Like I'm not really into. Your local sports team that's you care about. Uh, I've it's never the been Chicago into, Bears here. Uh, right, right. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I, I've never, I've never been into. Um, you know, I, I was forced to go to church a lot. I've always had like a thing against organized religion, uh-huh. which I've let go over over the years. But uh-huh. that created a lot of angst in my life, and so I just felt like I, um, 
and and I'm realizing, like kind of reading your book, that I really do focus way too much on the differences yeah. between me and other yeah. people, and um, and not. The you almost way. always have more in common with somebody than you would imagine. Right, right. Almost always. It's a wonderful point that you make over yeah. and over again, in, in a lot of interesting ways in your book. So, so we actually ran. Am I? Did I mention your book's called Mindwise? I don't think I said. And by the way. <laughs> I, I'll, I'll say this: When I saw your book and I, you know, I read the summary and everything, um, I kind of uh, was, um, I guess, I guess, a tad arrogantly thinking like I, I would kind of already know a lot of the stuff that was going to be in it, and I learned so much, and there were there was such great information. So oh, please, Thank everyone, you. go and and check out Mindwise, and incredibly informative. Yeah. But um, go so, on. So, so I wasn't going to mention these experiments because we we. Uh, we haven't finished them, and in fact, it's not not clear what's going to come out of them. But one thing that I was interested in is that people may chronically underestimate how much they have in common with a random person because they do tend to focus on the differences between themselves and others and also tend to think that they are more unique than they actually are. Turns out you're not so special. Right, right. But most people oh, yeah. think that they're quite unique, and so there's some evidence like that, but we... But, but it would be interesting to know whether that's a barrier to starting a conversation. Mm. And it's also the case that that when you start a conversation... So how do you prime people to like... Uh, uh, what do you tell them about how big the universe is yeah. and how insignificant... You, you ain't so special, dude. Everybody's <laughs> like you. Yeah. You have a much fight club quick. And then. <laughs> <laughs> so, so we... Uh, the, the, the other thing about conversation that is easy to overlook is that there's a magnetic quality to it in what you talk about. Mm. So you and I don't just talk about random things. Right. If you were to start a conversation with a stranger, you talk about something you have in common. Mm. Right? We both are in Chicago now. Maybe that would spark something. Um, See, I don't even know how to do this. Like, I feel like I, I don't, I, so I don't know. I, I, think, I still have residual shy kid. Uh, I think you're underestimating yourself there. Yeah. It turns out not to be so hard. Right, and the best way to start a conversation is just by giving somebody a compliment. Those are interesting headphones you have. Where did you get those? Mm. I don't know. You tell me something. Well, I um, do have interesting yeah, headphones. So You're right. I, well, I it turns out not to be not to be as hard as I think people expect. Yeah. So, so in our in our train studies and in the cabs and on the buses, we we were interested in trying to figure out what what is it that creates this this reluctance to engage mm. a stranger in conversation. Why is it that people predict that it will be unpleasant when, in fact, it seems to be quite pleasant? And we tested two possibilities. One is that people think it will be unpleasant once they start the conversation. Right? I won't have much in common with us, this person. This person um, uh, will just talk about uninteresting small talk. I'm not very good at small talk, and so the conversation will go, mm-hmm. whatever. Um, and to do that, we asked people to recall, say, the worst conversation they've ever had the best conversation they've ever had, and mm. then just a, a normal conversation. These are three different groups of people. We had to do this. And they just recalled one of those conversations to imagine that, the, and, and sorry, that's not, what we did, I'm sorry, we, we did something slightly, slightly different than this. So what we did in this experiment was we asked people to imagine that this person sitting next to them today was either a really uninteresting person, to imagine this person was a really interesting person, or just to imagine talking to this person, just our control condition. Mm. And if people were imagining that the conversation, what it, once it got going, would be really bad, would be unpleasant, then those in our control condition 
should predict having an experience that is closer to talking to the really dull and un uninteresting person than it is in talking to the really interesting person. And that's not, in fact, what we found at all. What we found was that when participants were thinking about just talking to a random person, they actually predicted that the conversation would go pretty well. Mm. That didn't seem to be the barrier. The barrier seemed to come earlier than that. It seemed to be that the barrier came in anxiety about starting the conversation. So in another experiment, we asked people, what percentage of folks on the train, of people on the train, would be willing to talk to you today if you tried? They estimated, on the trains, they estimated, uh, I think, 42%. And on the buses downtown, they estimated 43%. Mm. Of people on the train or on the bus today would be willing to talk to them. What percentage of people would actually be willing to talk to you if you tried? As far as we can tell, it's about 100%. Because we've never had anybody in the connection condition send us back a questionnaire saying that they tried to talk to somebody, but the person wouldn't talk back to them. Hmm. Everybody talks back. I mean, you try. You engage somebody with a smile. You say, hi, how are you doing? You're not a creep or a weirdo. Yeah. Uh, and people will talk back to you. That's interesting because I, I would have just, my gut feeling is that, um, that yeah, like 30%. I don't want to try. And, yeah. But, but the, the, I think part of the problem is, is we, I, I think those bad memories um, that we have in our lives are just far more salient. Yeah, but you know? we didn't find that was biasing our participants' judgments. We, mm. I actually don't think that's as, as powerful a mechanism as we might imagine. Because when we ask people to imagine how a conversation would go with an average person, they actually predict that it would go pretty well. I think the barrier comes earlier. It's a little like a speed bump, I think, at, a, at the top of a hill is how I think of these conversations. Where there's a little, uh, you know, a little uh, oomph you have to get to get over this hump at the top. I got to actually say, hey, how are you today? Hi, my name's Nick. What do you do for a living? You ride the train every day. Crappy weather we're having outside today. I got to do something to start the conversation. But then once you start it, once you actually engage somebody, you give them a smile, you ask them some question, you tell them what, you know, ask them what they do for a living or how long they lived in Chicago, then it's like a downhill slope. Mm. It's like a speed bump at the top of the hill that it's hard to get started, but once it gets going, it often goes pretty easily or at least more easily than that initial start. That's why I think there are things like icebreakers. There's a phenomenon, a concept, right, of icebreakers. Mm -hmm. There's no, there are no ice makers, right, something that would end a conversation. Uh, or to stop it once it's going. So you can be, it, so just have something in your head, like, you know, if there's a stranger that maybe, maybe I want to force myself to be more social. I could be like, hey, I, I've been reading this book yeah. MindWise recently. That's about putting you yourself out there and starting. I mean, I think that'd be an amazing yeah. icebreaker. I haven't tested it yet, but it's been on my mind. I've been meaning <laughs> to. I meant one, to before today. To one thing when we, go. when we published this paper, um, Reviewers asked us uh, how people started their conversation. We didn't know. We didn't. We didn't ask them um, after they were on the trains and, and in the buses. We didn't ask them at the time how they started their conversation. But we did send them emails afterwards mm. and ask them to recall how they started the conversation. And in particular, what we were interested in was whether people started the conversation by saying, hey, I'm in an experiment today, and they told me what I need to do is start this conversation with you. Nobody reported using that. It turned really? Out. Nobody did. Hmm. Uh, so 
I mean, it sounds like a bad opening line. It probably would be, but <laughs> uh, I don't know. I, I even if they did, be, you know, I, yeah, I don't yeah. know. It, you know, and, and as you were talking, um, I I also have to you know worried about other people not being interested. Now that I think about it, I mean, a big part of it is I'm also worried about. Uh, I'm probably more worried about um, myself being interesting. I, I think more fear be, of rejection. Fear yeah, of rejection. yeah, I guess so. I, I it, because I. I mean, sometimes I see people make that small talk and like walk in a room and work it and they remember everyone's names and it's just like so effortless and it's like, wow, that's amazing. Like I can't do that. I can have a good deep conversation with anyone one-on-one, but like getting into that um, is very difficult for me and especially because uh, I guess I I have such a high bar where uh, doing stand-up, I have this thing where this is all under my control. I'm sitting in front of 200 people um, you know, saying a bunch of things that, you know, uh, is getting this fantastic response from people yeah. and people think I'm super interesting and funny. And it's, it's really kind of, it's a trick, you know, these right. are all people think I'm making this stuff up off the top of my head. I've spent years working on, you know, this stupid joke about buttholes or something <laughs> like that. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, and uh, so, I mean, I think, I think there's, there's part of that where, I mean, I, I get older, I'm getting over, even with doing this podcast, this is like a thing that um, I've had to get over, which is I'm here, uh, you know, I'm I'm having a discussion with you right now, connecting with you, but, you know, I'm making this for listeners, and I mean, I can't, I can't guess at what an individual listener is listening to, but, but I am ultimately making this for them. But I would sit here and um, first have to like try to prove to whoever my guest is, if it's like someone that I didn't know and I, mm-hmm. like you, I'm meeting for the first time. I first have to like, oh, quick, hey, I, I, here's a bunch of smart things that I know. I, not only did I read your book, but I've thought about it and I have my own ideas. Mm-hmm. And I need to like, I need to get that out there so that you you respect before i can like just move on and have yeah. a regular conversation yeah. with people so that's i think that's i think i have a lot of weird hangups that are stopping me from and, and i think they're you're absolutely right i don't think right. they're weird in the sense of being unusual in fact right. if anything we we find we find that uh quite common which is why you know 95% of people uh, in our studies report not talking to strangers when they're when they're on trains or mm. buses or, or other places and so, I think it's also important to note that our data here does not suggest that you should engage everybody out there in the world right? any more than if a chef comes and tells you that this dish would be good with a little bit of salt on it. You don't bring out your shovel, right, to, to put it on, on the dish. You sprinkle it a little bit. Right. So it just, it's a little nudge to encourage you perhaps to be a little bit more engaged. But for me, the, the most interesting thing about this research, I think, is that people don't seem to know their own minds that well. They don't seem to understand the consequences of social interaction on them. Mm. That's one phenomenon we have going on. And they also don't, I think, seem to understand the human being sitting right next to them. They think this person here is not that interested in engaging in conversation, but in fact, if you tried, they might be surprisingly interesting. This is something uh, I, that really, I, I mean, I've heard some similar stuff before, but, uh, but I think this is just so useful. Um, one, of, one of the key elements of your books is, as I'm talking about, you know, 
insecurities and feeling self-conscious. Um, uh, another another part of your um, uh, book where you talk about um, people overestimating <laughs> how how much others are paying attention yeah. to um, a, a mistake. Yeah. Like, like yeah. if I uh, sometimes I like flub a word or something like that. I'm like, oh damn, I'm yeah. talking to a scientist, and now they're gonna think I'm an idiot, and blah blah blah. And um, it and it's interesting because like. Philosophically, um, if I were giving myself advice, I would say that um, a mistake here or there along the way um, just makes you more likable, more vulnerable, and it kind of humanizes yeah, interesting. a uh-huh. person. And uh-huh. and not only that, but it's it's also demonstrating like, hey, these are you know, this is all very complicated stuff. Yeah, you know, that everyone's confused by. Yeah trying to sort out this thing called life. You know, yeah. you're not the only one. And and I think that, um, I mean, a lot of what comedians do is just advertise our many flaws mm-hmm. on stage, and that's kind of uh, yeah. what draws people That's what enables in. people to connect with right. you. Yeah. And so so those were experiments that I did some years ago. Um, uh, can you talk about the school. Barry Manilow thing? Oh, yeah. Is yeah. that so yours? This, no, so, so this was my advisor's okay. experiment, Tom Gilovich. Um I was very lucky to have the most amazing <laughs> PhD advisor in the world. And uh, we, you know, so, so the work that Tom and I did together was after these experiments I'll describe in just a moment. We had so mm-hmm. much fun putting them together. But this was an experiment that Tom did with Vicky Medvek and Ken Savitsky. These were graduate students of his uh, at the time. They predated my time at, at Cornell, which is where I got my PhD. And this experiment that they conducted is I think probably the most liberating experiment in all of psychology. Um, And what they did was they brought participants into the laboratory in groups. um, And when people came, they were then shuffled off into a conference room like the one we're sitting in now. And there was a group of four or five seated around a table. They were given questionnaires to take care of. There was then another participant who um, was extracted out of this. Uh, and they were taken down the hall to a separate room. And that person was told that, you know, as part of this experiment, um, we need you to put on a shirt. And so they handed the other person this, this T-shirt, and because you're an experiment, you'll do anything that I tell you to do. Right. And so you put this shirt on, and as you're pulling it over the top of your head, what you see is there right on your chest is this huge picture of Barry Manilow. <laughs> huge picture of Barry Manilow. Now, you know, Possible you're a fan of Barry Manilow, I don't know. But even if you were, you wouldn't wear this shirt, I'm pretty sure. <laughs> but you are. So now you've got this Barry Manilow shirt on. You're a little self-conscious. You know, it's a little embarrassing. Does Barry Manilow like know that you... He has to by this point. <laughs> he has to by this point, I would think. It's yeah. so funny. We used your face in a scientific yeah. experiment that if someone associated themselves with you conspicuously, yeah. they would obviously be horrifically <laughs> embarrassed. That's right. <laughs> So they also used uh, Vanilla Ice and John Tesh. Oh, that's awesome. Well, Vanilla Ice knows his place in the world. right. (laughs) So anyway, you're wearing this picture of Barry Manilow and a little embarrassed, and you then are brought back into this room with all the other participants, and you're seated around this table, and you start filling out a questionnaire. After just a moment, the experimenter comes back and says, you know what, because we've started so late, uh, we can't have you continue this. Let's... Let's just have you do this another time. So 
The experimenter pulls you out of the room. And at that point, the experiment is essentially over. <laughs> what they ask you to do, wearing this Barry Manilow shirt, is to predict how many people in that room would be able to identify that it was Barry Manilow on your shirt out of this multiple choice list of four people. So you're given a multiple choice test. And you're asked to predict how many people would be able to identify that it was Barry Manilow on your shirt. The folks in the room were given the very same list of four, the very same multiple choice test, and they were asked to predict who was on your shirt. And so they were told there was a guy just in this room a moment ago, he had somebody on a shirt. Can you pick out who it was out of this list of four? Mm. Now the person who was wearing the Barry Manilow shirt, on average, they estimated about 50% of people in the room would be able to identify that it was Barry Manilow <laughs> on your shirt. So they thought, you know, most people would be able to tell. But in that room, only 25% were able to do so accurately. Now, 25% is chance. That's what you'd get if you were just totally guessing. If nobody had any idea at all who was on your shirt, you'd get a 25% accuracy, right? Because they're just guessing. And so it turns out that nobody really noticed who was on your shirt. And of course they wouldn't. Why the hell would they care? Yeah. They were filling out their surveys. They don't give a damn about you. Right. right? You care about yourself. You're the center of your own universe. Mm -hmm. But nobody else cares about you. Yeah. Ah, so just relax a little bit. Um, egocentrism, egocentrism is such a tricky thing to, yeah. I mean, get so, ourselves out of. So Tom referred to this, uh, Tom Gilovich referred to this as the spotlight effect. Mm -hmm. And uh, I, I think knowing this effect, uh, as I said, is one of the most liberating results in all, all of psychology. When you do that really stupid, idiotic thing, likely people didn't notice. In other experiments that we did afterwards, we tested if they do notice, do they really care? Do they judge you as harshly as you think for doing that stupid thing? Mm. And we found over and over again, we put people through all manner of embarrassing, stupid foibles in front of an audience. Like? Like giving them really impossible questions that would make them look like an idiot mm. in front of a group of people. Like asking them to sing the Star Spangled Banner with a wad of bubble gum uh, in their mouth. So they mm. were kind of a spitting, drooling mess, like inter, uh, introducing them to another participant as somebody who experiences occasional bad hair days and experiences uh, frequent troubles wetting their beds. Mm. Right? That's not good. You don't want to be introduced right, like right. that to somebody else. And the question was, how harshly were you judged by other people for these embarrassing things? And what we found was not as harshly as you expected to be. So even once people did notice you doing something stupid, they often cut you more slack than you guessed they would. They empathized with you more than you thought and so judged you more charitably than you expected them to. So even if they do notice, eh, people mm. don't really care. They get over it soon enough. The bad news is if you do desperately need attention, yes, you're right. going to have to do a lot more than yes. wear a, a, a shirt with an enormous Barry Manilow That's face. right. That's right. So that, yeah. Chest, so that so. so this goes for positive things as well as negative right. things. So that awesome thing you did, that interview you just nailed, or that joke right. that was just perfect, eh, people will forget about it soon enough too. Yeah, there's that tricky thing. It's like, well, hey, here you don't have to feel self conscious. Oh crap! Now you feel invisible. <laughs> Sorry. People don't care as much about you. I don't know. You know this. Takes I think the that's edge. freedom. Yeah. I I mean, it, I I'll tell you. I I um. I mean, uh, this is something that I've gone through. Uh, when I started out as a comedian, I was just like so free. I mean, I cared. I was self-conscious. I had stage fright. But ultimately, I just did not. 
care at all. And I got a lot of attention for that and like being myself and everything. And then once like I gained success and now like, you know, there's contracts involved mm-hmm. in making money and there's pressure and everything. I, I think for a long time I was I was trying too hard. Mm. And like recently, especially like uh, breaking both my feet, there's something about breaking both your feet and then having to spend three months in, in your parents' basement <laughs> that just makes you not yeah. give a shit. And, uh, and, I, and I feel like it really was like kind of, reinvigorating in a way for uh-huh. my act my deliveries have improved and like yeah. gone kind of back to where it was and uh, it's also like i've had to uh sit on stage uh, this is what i was wondering um because because you um uh, yeah and, and we'll we'll get back to some of this stuff um but a uh, you you tend to downplay the effects of these kind of subtle cues. This is, this is very hot business right now in um, in the various life sciences, psychology, mm-hmm. uh, um, that that uh, you, you know um, uh, body language and, and yep. this the, like a power stance and, yep. and that and that sort of thing. This is going to change your life and 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 picking up on these little facial cues and and all yep. of that. We're we're blowing this out of proportion a little bit, right? The, well, there are a couple of things to keep in mind. Right. So one thing that is very true is that uh, people use others' behavior as a guide to their minds, as a guide to their thoughts and their beliefs and their attitudes, and even to their social status. So if I'm trying to understand what you're thinking or feeling or wanting, I watch what you do. Right. And I infer almost directly from that that you think as you act. So if you do something mean and nasty, I assume that you're a mean and nasty person with ill intent. Right. right? Psychologists refer to that as the correspondence bias. I draw a correspondent inference between what your beliefs or attitudes are and what your actions are. Mm. Now that's a mistake because our attitudes and our beliefs and our intentions and our emotives bear only at times a weak or at least a complicated relationship with our actual behavior. Yeah, right. right. So look at your to-do list. And that's right. Look yeah. at your to-do list. Or what about accidents when you know you hurt me without intending to? Oh, absolutely. Or uh, the fact that you can fake me out, right? That you can pretend to be powerful, and I can't tell. So if you look, for instance, at people's ability to detect lies mm. from somebody else, you find a couple of interesting things. One is that people can't do it very well, but second is that people tend to trust what others say. That is, they assume what they're saying is consistent with their intentions. It's another example of the correspondence bias. And so we certainly do make a lot of inferences based on other people's actions. That's very true. And so you can fool other people, essentially, by acting in certain ways. But the question is, is that really reflecting your true beliefs or attitudes? Am I actually gaining insight into your attitudes or beliefs or motives or knowledge or intentions by watching what you do? And there, there's more slippage. There, there's, uh, it's, it's harder to, to get things from people's behavior than you might imagine. Hmm. If I want to know what you want for Christmas or what it feels like to be you on stage. Right. Uh, there's nothing. I can't watch you. Right. I, I can't pick it up from your body. It's, it's so if strange, I, those errors in, um, in communication, too. Oh, well, uh, so, uh, oh, geez. It, it, what's the best way to approach what I want to talk about so, so a couple things. One is that I'm, I think I'm very much in agreement with you with a, a lot of the, you know, this 
people are saying what they mean. Just um, mm-hmm. I, I love your we should talk about um, getting perspective yeah. rather than taking perspective. Um, but I have noticed so since I've been on crutches, I've, I've noticed. So now I sit on stage as the first time that I've ever sat on stage before. And it does it. It sort of changes my attitude yeah. a little bit. Yeah. It does kind of it because now I do. I don't. I used to do more like short, real punchy jokes, and now I do more like longer. I do storytelling and introduce a lot of like more complicated science ideas and stuff like that. And sitting does help. Like it gives people yeah. a little more patience for mm-hmm. setting up stuff. It draws people in a little bit. But it's interesting because, I mean, comedians are, I mean, you're a professor, you know, doing the same lecture over and over again. Each time's a science experiment, you yep. know, you're tweaking little things. But I have noticed there, there's a part in my act where, um, you know, I yell at a lady in a funny way um, and figuring out what is the funniest way to yell. It's like, oh, that comes off a little too angry. That's too silly mm-hmm. and trying to find that. So I definitely do think there are lots of subtleties. Yeah, yeah. In but there. if you wanted to find out how funny somebody thought a joke was, mm. what should you do? Should you ask them how funny was that? Or should you watch whether they laugh or not? Well, it turns out people are much more likely to laugh when there are others around them than when there aren't. Mm. Right? So there are big situational effects on how you actually behave yeah. that may you know, have some effect on how funny you think the joke actually is. But still, if I want to know how you're feeling. The best way to find out is to ask you. That's interesting. I have no. a joke on my first CD. It was a very, very strange joke about traveling back in time, having a sex change, traveling back in time, and impregnating yourself. It was a really, really strange joke based off of something I had read, like Michio Kaku talking about uh-huh. his assistant. And... Um, Really, we, uh, very funny joke. Like the comics in the back of the room would laugh, and and um, uh, but it would just make people so uncomfortable in an audience all the time. And I knew it was funny, uh, but and, and usually I just like if they're not laughing, you know, it gets dropped, it gets cut, right? Well, I went to record my CD, and I just had this weird attachment to this. I just knew it was something funny about it. The audiences weren't seeing, and and. Um, but it just made people uncomfortable, like this strange idea, yeah. you know, what the hell is this guy talking about? Well, I was having such a great set and everything. I was like, well, what the hell? I'll throw it in. I released the CD. Now a CD you listen to by yourself. Your yeah. With that. And that joke was something that like everybody referenced as like a standout piece in my CD, like, like every blogger and everything else. Um, so <laughs> Yeah. So yeah, that's that's a tough. So the context, you know, can af- have a big effect on your behavior that may not be reflected in your actual experience. So mm-hmm. there's an interesting, some really interesting work uh, done by a psychologist named Ann Kring, who's at uh, UC Berkeley, about um, looking at people's stereotypes about men and women, um, and trying to understand whether they're actually accurate or not. And mm-hmm. so so. You'll see how this is related in a minute. So the common stereotype that people have is that women are more emotional than men. Now, is that true? Right. So what she did was she had men and women watch different videos and uh, that were emotionally evocative and 
measure their actual experience, both with some physiological equipment to measure arousal, um, but then also ask them to report on how they were feeling uh, watching these different videos. Turns out men and women reported exactly the same experience. Mm -hmm. But when observers watched videotapes of the men and women, they said that the women were feeling more emotion than the men were. That is consistent with the stereotype. Now, why were they getting that? They were getting that not because men and women were actually feeling differently. They were getting that because women were more expressive than men. Mm. They were showing their emotions more than men were. So it wasn't anything about their experience. If you looked at them, you'd say, oh, the women thought your jokes were funnier than the men did because they were laughing more than men. Right, right, right. But in fact, that wasn't consistent with their actual experience. You just couldn't tell that from from their body. Yeah, that's so interesting because we do. Um, I've talked to, uh, already. I've been talking a bit about uh, you know gender differences with various guests on the podcast, and um, and I I mean I love evolutionary psychology and biology, and I and I do find these differences um, very important and interesting. But but it's like reading um, uh, some of the stuff in your book was was just a, a wonderful reminder that um, sometimes these differences are just. They're a little too fun, yeah. you know. They're they're a little well, too enticing, and then we tend to make a little bit. Too yeah, it's much good to keep them. them in perspective. Right. It's good to keep them in perspective for for two reasons. Anytime you see see differences reported, say on on anything, one is it's not so clear where the differences are coming from. Mm-hmm. And so in this case, women were seen as being more emotional than men. In fact, there was no difference in actual experience. The difference was in expressivity. Right. The other thing that's hard to keep in mind when you hear reports about these kinds of differences, and, and that's what I mentioned in the book, is to keep track of the magnitude of these differences. These differences are not always as big as people think they are. And so the other effect you get with, say, gender differences is that people predict the differences between men and women, particularly on some dimensions, not on all, but on the ones that are most uh, closely associated with the stereotype of men and women tend to exaggerate the differences right. between the groups. This is what I thought was really um, important. I mean, and this is kind of um, a big part of the thrust of your book, mm-hmm. I guess, which is that, that um, you know, ultimately this is pretty remarkable that we're able to have any kind of prediction whatsoever into what mm-hmm. another person, you know, we've uh, came a long way in evolution or whatever the hell, however yeah. you want to say it. It is, you know, relatively remarkable that we, can guess at all. Yes. Um, and right. and we are quite accurate in kind of the direction yep. of yep. Uh, uh, of, of our predictions, yep. and it's just the, this magnitude and and um, our our um, perception of our accuracy is is um, embellished. Yeah. Yeah. We're overconfident and uh, in our in our judgments and our ability to understand each other. Hmm. It's not so much incompetence that's the problem in social life. It's hubris. Yeah, that uh, so I I had um <laughs> this is a it's funny because I have to guess at what an audience is going to think right. of a joke and which ultimately a lot of times is just me throwing my hands up and being like, well, got to do what I think is funny. But uh, and but then I do let the audience edit kind of. But but I'll think I have the best joke ever and then it just uh, flat lines, just nothing at all. And then I'll think, well, I'll throw this out just because it fits. This is a nothing joke. And then the room explodes uh-huh. and goes crazy. And so it's, 
I mean, I get better at it as yeah, I've been at it for 11 years and, you know, I get, I get better and better, but it's still so hard to predict. And then there's things that you'll never see coming. I have a joke um, that is about, um, uh, it. it's a good joke, but I had to drop this part of it. it it's about um, uh, me trying to learn neuroscience and how our brains have not evolved to uh, for academic success, uh-huh. uh, you know, we, we can walk and do all this computation very easily, and you know, we don't even think about it. Um, but um, but there's this very effortful um, stuff. But but you can, you know, someone talking about fantasy football or something like that. I mean, they can sound like geniuses, and that's because our brains are, have kind of evolved to care more about competition and and stuff uh-huh. like that. Well, what I what I used to say is that we have like humans have a long history of keeping track of who that top monkey is. Um, well, what I didn't realize is that often how audiences w- would perceive what I was saying. Like I just think of everyone as primates. A lot of audiences do not think that of humans. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. So what they were putting together that I was communicating in their heads was that I was talking about football players who are predominantly African-American. Uh-huh. And I was saying, so I was calling them monkeys, which is a horrific yeah. racial slur. So they interpreted it as racist. Uh, yeah, so uh, yeah, 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 yeah. So I, and I get these audible gasps. <laughs> and uh, I was like, well, I guess I can't say that anymore. Uh-huh. Just in the way it's misperceived, which is uh-huh. it, so yeah. strange, so challenging. And then um, uh, uh, the, the other thought that I had as we were uh, – this is fantastic talking to you because I'm thinking of a million um, thoughts a minute, but I, I really liked going back to the Barry Manilow thing. Yeah. I liked the stuff where um, uh, the, the tests about um, so, someone watching you while, while you tried to do math equations or whatever, and then your um, uh, how, how it affected people's... Was this your work or am I thinking of something else? Mm-hmm. It affects someone else's performance. Um, when uh, like, and you can put like pictures of a famous person. Oh, so that that's other people's work. That's about priming. Uh, Was this I in your book? Maybe I'm so mixing much. it up with someone else. I don't think I talked about this. Oh, unless I forget. This is probably another guest unless that I'm thinking of. Yeah. Um, okay, well, well, let's skip over that. Um, so I, I had that, a question. That, that's where the fact that it's being recorded is good. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I don't know how you keep all this stuff in your head. You talk with lots of different folks and yeah you're kind of an outsider on the on the field yeah it's yeah like, i didn't go to college or anything oh is that like right that. yeah no is just, that right just interested in this but stuff. i mean you don't you don't live and breathe this as a as a scientist every day you've got this comics job that yeah yeah butter. just a comedian easy I, to get it all mixed up yeah sure. yeah i yeah. i i try to watch lectures and read books and, and yeah stuff, stuff sounds so. similar yeah 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 a lot, a lot of times this is not the first time that i've I've mixed up uh, someone else's research. Just shows that you're human. And yeah, exactly. That's now right. I'm talking to you. I'm like, no yeah. big deal. Made That's a right. mistake. Moving forward. Um, before I, I have, uh, I have some closing uh, things to talk about, which may take us a little while. So, so before we get into that, um, it, because we're running up on an hour here, and um, I imagine uh, you gotta get going. But um, the charity of the week. Why, why don't you? Um, uh, plug a charity for me. 
Kids in danger is what I would like. Kids to in danger. Um, so go to kidsindanger.org. And what is? Um, I had actually so this, never heard of this. So this before. is a, a charity that was started by colleagues of mine, Linda Ginzel and Boaz Kesar, when they lost their son in a crib accident that uh, was caused by oh. a defective crib that um, had not been recalled properly. And so they push for legislation to improve consumer safety for kids' products um, to try to save lives that should not be lost. Mm. Um, that is amazing. So go to um, kidsindanger.org. Um, go to donate, um, and you can read more about all of that. And do something good. Give yourself a pat on the back. Um, Awesome. Uh, so here, here's what I wanted to, I, I have a couple of last things. Um, maybe if, if you've enjoyed this enough, I'll get to have you back on again sometime. Um, but I, um, I was curious about your bus study and, and subway study. Do you think, so, so what were the three conditions again, one more time that you told people to do? So we asked them to connect with the person sitting next okay. to them. To sit in solitude, all right, or to do whatever they normally do. Okay, give them anything. This is what I'm wondering: if if you happen to do um, a study like this again, what if you were to throw in a group of people that were told to meditate, guided meditation? Oh, interesting. And because I I just wonder if inadvertently there another factor could be being measured, which is just the difference between active and passive yeah. downtime. Yeah, it could be. We could be, we could be studying um, engagement in a situation where otherwise you would not be engaging with somebody else. We don't, I mean, they, they could also be doing that in, in the solitude condition, but that's really a question about why is engaging a stranger in conversation pleasant? Right. Is it about engagement mm -hmm. or is it about the other person? We do or it could be about novelty too, right? I mean, if this is something like, I mean, I don't feel like people do this much, especially yeah. outside of the Midwest. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so it could be about novelty. That one I'm not so concerned about. I right. don't think that's probably going on because novelty per se isn't pleasant. Right. Right. So I could ask you to crawl on, on all fours on the way out of the building. That'd be novel. You haven't done that before. But, uh, you know, you wouldn't enjoy that. I could ask you to lay nude in the center aisle of the train singing right. I'm a Little Teapot. Also exceptionally novel, uh, not pleasant. Uh, I don't, know. <laughs> don't knock it till you've tried it. Yeah, huh? yeah, yeah. exactly. Have you tested this? Yes, Come that's on, right. scientists. We, yeah, we, <laughs> well, I think we actually we wrote in the paper that we actually did not feel necessary feel it necessary to run uh, that you're condition. Making dangerous but presumptions. We are making some dangerous <laughs> presumptions. We could be wrong about that. Um, what if that's the key to happiness and well-being for everybody? We're, we're missing just it. We're missing once it. Once a year. You that's right. Let's give it a try. Saying I'm a little teapot. You just do have go. to be laying on the floor yeah. of a subway for this to work, yeah. unfortunately. Standing is not as effective. <laughs> so I did write it. I wrote an op-ed piece in the Chicago Tribune uh, after these experiments came out just before Metra started the quiet car policy. So I was working with them. They asked their uh, riders what they wanted. They wanted quiet cars, um, just like our participants did. And one person said they did. And one person wrote um, 
in the comment box, which you should just never read. And I've, I've stopped doing that. But <laughs> one person wrote one of the I'm first comments. I'm a comedian, comments. believe yes. me. That's a lesson I you learned know. a long time ago. So what they wrote was if this guy likes uh, if this guy likes noise on the train so much, talking to each other, mm. then maybe you should strap himself to the front of the train car. And <laughs> Yeah, you know, look, that's novel. Yeah, uh, yeah. And it's different. Uh, <laughs> not so pleasant, I'm pretty sure. So I don't think novelty is it. Right, but the truth right, is right. that we, we don't really know what, what the exact mechanism is. And I think there are a bunch of mechanisms. See, because, it, okay, so so you could, um, you could maybe go... Um, to, um, well, I don't know if this is a fair comparison. Uh, I want to say like a movie theater or something like that where you're surrounded. Obviously, you're not connecting. But uh, but you could uh, like hang out with someone watching TV and but maybe going for a hike by yourself would be pro- probably ultimately – um, going for a hike with another person, let's let's say that's the best. But mm-hmm. if it's between hiking by yourself and hanging out with a person watching TV, having this passive leisure and yeah. not really act, I, I, I would venture a guess to say that going for a hike by yourself might be more. Yes, yeah, some know. of these are apples to oranges comparisons. Right, right? And so right. it's and and lots of things contribute to well-being. Even solitude does. Even time spent alone and quiet reflection can be certainly pleasurable. There's mm-hmm. no, nothing in our data suggests it's not. Um, I mean, I certainly I get lonely sometimes. That happens, but it is like of all the things in my life, that's not like it's really not an issue for me at yeah. all. Like I. I feel like I actually enjoy being like just making a mess in my hotel room, yeah. not caring about someone else. Yeah. Yeah. No, look, so I, I love being outdoors in the woods. I grew up hunting and fishing as a kid. Mm-hmm. Uh, I still enjoy those kinds of activities a lot. And a lot of that requires lots of time spent in solitude. And so the question isn't whether, whether um, there, there are times when it's, you know, pleasant to be alone. Of, of course, it is. The question is, in these contexts, where when we're close to others, when we could engage with somebody, would we be better off in these situations, engaging uh, or not? And might we have some mistaken or some some misunderstandings about the consequences of engagement? Our data simply suggests that there are some times in your life where you could be made a little bit happier if you just reached out to somebody. It doesn't say you shouldn't go for a hike by, on your own or right. enjoy crapping up your hotel room all by yourself. Yeah, yeah. Suggest that, you know, when you're standing in the line at Starbucks and the person sitting next to you has got an interesting new gadget, you might say, hey, that that looks neat. Or you're just waiting in the in in the waiting room somewhere and you got nothing else to do, uh, that you wouldn't be happier finding out, you know, where are you from? What do you do for a living? Yeah. Um I think you're right. Tell I me a joke, I need Mr. To be Comedian. More open to people too. When I mean, I think that is like ultimately my fear is that someone's gonna make me tell them a joke and it just makes me so. You don't have one ready? And, no, yeah. I don't at all. I mean, it's just a different thing telling a joke on stage. But see, that's interesting. So yeah, I never yeah. would have guessed that about a comedian. So right. I've just learned something interesting from you. Right. Because right. I might but ask. Sometimes you. people are like, "Oh, who's this dick? You won't. You can't tell me one joke." That I get that a lot. Oh, just one. Come on, you can't give me one joke. <laughs> It's like I'll give, I'll offer free tickets to some. Oh, you want to come? Like I'll meet someone, and be like, oh, you should come and check out a show, and they'll be like, 
you you want uh, well tell me one joke like i'm not i gave you free tickets to a show i'm not like auditioning for you yeah. to come like, yeah. like now I, I regret that having happened altogether i i i'm going to make an effort i'm going to make more of an effort to talk to strangers and um be more approachable and everything else i think you're absolutely right i think your re- research is dead on and that that will increase a lot of people's um well-being um that's a great time to wrap up, but I just uh, Please, <laughs> I have two yeah. other things Please, I'm, I'm super to. interested in. Happy to. Um, uh, so there was um, one of the things that I liked just because, and, and I was going to let this go, but we've been talking about making mistakes, humanizing mm-hmm. a person. Mm-hmm. I really liked the thing about um, th- this happening with, and, and if we're opening a Pandora's box of a half-hour conversation, you can let me know, and maybe we can revisit this okay. again, but um, a different time. But um, your your stuff about uh, like a, a car um, breaking down and developing a personality, yeah, and a us mind. projecting a, a mind on yeah. you. So there, so so one of the things I I talk about in 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 the book is this first process. Um, of engaging our capacity to connect with the mind of of somebody else. And this opens up a couple of interesting psychological questions, I think, and provides a different lens or way of understanding certain kinds of social phenomena in the world. So there seem to be cases where we are in front of a fully mindful human being like us, and yet we treat them as if they are somehow lesser than we are. Mm -hmm. They have like less going on between their ears than we do. We don't seem to and this is even if we acknowledge them as a bright person. Could be, uh, yeah. Right? Like, Not as sophisticated as we are. So if we ask you how much thought did you put into your recent vote, right, in an election, people be likely to say that they thought harder about it right, than right. other people did. Like people think I'm coming up with these jokes off the top yeah, of my right. head where yeah. that's just impossible. Right. So you ha- they assume that you didn't spend hours and hours thinking right. very carefully. They treat you as if you don't have as much going on between your ears right, right. as you actually do. Or that, you know, you just wrote a book in like no time at all because it's easy to read. Right, right. So, so these are cases where we seem to dehumanize other people uh, a little bit. We fail to attribute a fully human mind to them. But then on the other side of this are cases where we seem to do exactly the opposite. Instead of kind of stripping a person of a mind that they have, they seem to attribute a mind to something that clearly does not, mm. like their computer or their cell phone or their car which is just a stupid thing. Right. I think by understanding the, these opposite sides of, the, of the, the same coin, we can help to understand something about what engages our social senses in the first place because I think it's the very same kinds of triggers that cause us to see a mind in a gadget that cause us not to see one in another, in another person. Mm-hmm. So, for instance... One thing that causes us to see uh, some somebody as, as having a mind being thoughtful is that their behavior is not perfectly predictable or robotic. They do things that are somewhat unexpected. So if you're sitting at your computer just pressing the same key over and over and over again, you just look like a mindless machine. Right. right? You're not thinking at all, I infer. Mm-hmm. But if you're doing something that's somewhat random and unpredictable and you're going about from one place to another, well, then I infer that you're thinking about what you're doing because how else can I explain what you're doing? You must have some intention or motive or some goal. 
Turns out the same thing is true with billiard balls or, uh, or computers. When it does the same thing over and over and over again, just as it's supposed to, it seems mindless. But when it breaks down, it doesn't work like it's supposed to, does something quirky or unpredictable, that's when it seems to have a mind, we find in our experiment. That's when your car gets a name. Yeah. Oh, Bessie, yeah. she yeah. can be a little <laughs> finicky sometimes. <laughs> That's exactly right. She's been good to me. That's exactly right. Yeah. But if it's just running smoothly, it's just nothing. You know, nothing. It's a yeah. robot. That's so interesting. The other thing that convinces me that you have a mind is that you tell me that you do. Mm. That is, I can hear it in your voice. Mm-hmm. That's the other way that you can get people to humanize technology is you give it a human voice. Right. So we've done this with autonomous vehicles. We had a grant from General Motors where they were interested in understanding how people are going to interact with autonomous vehicles. These are cars that drive themselves. How can we convince you, Shane, to give up control of your car, to give up your life to this computerized vehicle? They realized they had a psycho- psychology problem here. Well, one way to do it is to convince drivers that the car is really smart. It was really intelligent, right. which it turns out it is. Yeah, yeah, It's smarter than you are, and it can drive better than you can, right? And right. so how did we do that? Well, we ran some experiments where we gave the car a voice. We also gave it uh, a name. We called it Iris, and it had a gender because the voice was gendered. Um, and what the voice did was just talk to you in a perfectly human voice because it was a human being. And that voice, it was it would it would name things that were coming out ahead, things that it could sense coming ahead, which vehicles can do. It would talk to you in almost an interactive way, just like your GPS lady does uh, in the car. And that manipulation in, in those conditions, they rated the car as being more mindful. That is, they said it was more intelligent, better able to plan a route, that it was better able to sense what was going on around it when it had a voice than when it didn't. Mm-hmm. They also reported trusting it more. And they were more relaxed when they got into an accident. What's more, when they, were, when they got into an accident, one that we had to manufacture so that everybody, just for experimental control purposes, everybody got into the same accident. They were hit by another vehicle, so it was the other car's fault. When their car had a voice and therefore had a mind, they tended to blame the other car. Because mm. your car was too smart uh. to get into that accident. Right, so here's a case where by using the same triggers that cause me to recognize that you're a thoughtful, intelligent person right. allows me to humanize a vehicle. Mm-hmm. But when I can't see that in you, so let's say we have you and I are interacting over a medium that doesn't have a voice. It's just text. Mm. We strip the interaction of your voice. We find that people rate you as being less mindful, more like an animal or an object. Yeah. Less thoughtful, less rational, less sophisticated when we strip the voice out of your interaction. And then we uh, leave a bunch of horrible comments on That's on exactly what it is. Because, otherwise, because obviously you are just a stupid just, idiot. Just a troll. You're just a stupid idiot, yeah. we infer. And so I think this is a case where by, by thinking about this as, as a psychological problem, when is it that we engage our capacity to understand the mind of another and therefore attribute a mind to them? allows us to under, understand these two very, very different seeming kinds of phenomena, both mm-hmm. dehumanization, where we strip another person of a mind and treat them more like an animal or an object, but also when do we take an animal or an object and humanize them, attribute right. a mind to them. And it's so funny that we're trying to take human error 
out of a vehicle and to do that and have people accept it, we need to humanize. Make it more human. Yeah, that's right. And, like, and, 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 and maybe maybe intentionally add a bit of randomness and, and uh, unpredictability. Oh, interesting. To, yeah, well, I don't know about that. Well, maybe. I, I mean, uh, maybe you could set it. I mean, not with the driving, yeah. obviously, but but I, I don't know. There might be there might be somewhere. There might be, the, yeah. The, yeah. The, the GPS error in the voice or something <laughs> like that. Stutters yeah. once yeah. in a while. Then Sorry, not Sean, your shame. Right? Something like <laughs> yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. What's your uh, name again? I'd ask you. I so um, bad with names. So, I mean, and I, I think this is um, – this is – what that had me thinking about too was was that again um, the the importance of uh, like maybe letting people know that we aren't so perfect and we make mistakes once in a while. I'm from La Crosse, Wisconsin, um, and I think one of my biggest issues growing up was this um, was this showmanship of this like Pleasantville. You know, everyone just uh-huh. happy and perfect all of the time. Like yeah. nothing ever goes wrong in life, and everyone knows exactly what they're doing, and they know everything. And it, it's it's like almost creepy, yeah, in in a way. And but I, you know, there's all kinds of dysfunction lying under underneath. Exactly. Right? So that's the case again. Going back to one of our earlier conversations about how behavior can be misleading. Right. Here are cases where you can act perfectly happy, even right. when you're not. Right, right, right. And I don't know what it's really like to be you unless I engage you in some way. Unless I'd, I connect you with you. I think we should all you, do, make an effort to make ourselves more vulnerable. and That will enable other people to connect. Yeah, yeah. You I, know that as a comedian better than anybody. I've been trying to, this is like a joke of mine on stage I've been using where, you know, I, since I've been on crutches, people are treating me the best I've ever been treated in my entire life. And I, I guess, see, I always thought maybe it was just that, you know, as a stranger now, I'm no longer a threat or something. But your explanation, I think, makes a lot more could um, be makes yeah. a lot more sense. And um, and but my my joke uh, about it on stage is that you know why don't we all treat people? Like, I'm far more broken on the inside, you know, than my foot is. Uh-huh. But we, you know, that's the thing you don't get to call into work with broken dreams, you <laughs> right. know, or collect workman's <laughs> compensation for a crushed <laughs> spirit or shattered ego <laughs> but we should because yeah. then we'd all treat each other um a little more a, humanely a lot more humanely um yeah. you've been a, an amazing guest i hope we get to chat again sometime um you, you have a new book you're working on or anything like that? oh gosh this uh, last one was so hard to do uh, a decade from now perhaps maybe, maybe. Um, te- do you have a twitter or anything i should have asked this I, good for you man. i don't um but people can go on to um the university of um, Chicago booth website and find it. Uh, I'll, I'll put links on the here we are podcast page and all of that. And please check out the book mind wise. This was, this was like skimming the, the surface. We covered a lot of stuff today, but mm-hmm. um, uh, I have about 50 more questions um, to ask. So go ahead and check that out. Uh, I guarantee you're going to learn a bunch of stuff and, and um, uh, look at the world a little bit differently and maybe it will enrich your, life and social interactions. Thank you, Nick Evley, for coming on the Here We Are podcast. Thank you guys for listening. Make sure and go to herewearepodcast.com to find out more about Nick, about his book, about his research, about life, about everything you ever wanted to know. I just promised you a little bit too much there. I'm going to reel that in. But 
we're moving that direction. We're learning a lot about a lot of different topics. I think you'll agree. We're having a lot of fun. I am recording this from my parents' basement at the moment. I'm, I'm visiting for the holidays. I'm not sure you should take the advice of anyone who is giving that advice from their parents' basement. But uh, I don't know. I think we're on the right track so far. You're going to have to keep on listening and decide for yourself. Next week on the program, one of my very good friends, Peter McGraw, is on the program. He is um, uh, one of the first academics that I met when I started um, this journey toward trying to merge science and comedy together in an interesting way. A few years ago, I, I met him. He is a he's a professor who's trying to... Um, He's a scientist trying to uh, learn and research comedy, and I'm a comedian trying to learn and research science. So uh, we we just um, ended up coming together like magic if scientists believed in such things. Um, so make sure and check out his book, Humor Code. He traveled around the world figuring out what finds things, uh, what makes things funny in different cultures. So, uh, you know, I could stop this right now and I could <laughs> I could re-record this because I made a little mistake right there. But if you uh, if we learned anything from the episode that you just heard, it's that most people don't even notice when you make a little mistake like that and you build it up too much in your head. Of course, what you probably shouldn't do is then go back and point that out and blab about it for another 45 seconds or so when you already had a great episode and now you're just talking just to annoy people, I imagine, is what I'm doing. But for reals, guys, next week, one of my best friends in the whole wide world. And check out his book, The Humor Code. It's fantastic. We're going to talk a whole lot about it next week. Thank you for listening. Are we? Yes. Where are we? Here. Why are we here? Not entirely clear. We are misfits thrust into existence by random chance with no hints at all as to how we're supposed to make sense of it all. It's immensely bizarre. Here we are. Hello. I'm Dave Ross. Hey, and I'm Hampton Young. And we host Suicide Buddies on Starburns Audio. That's right. It's a podcast about suicide, but not to make light of it. We actually talk about suicidal thoughts, depression, kind of with a sense of levity that Dave and I have with each other. He's my best friend. Come on. Yeah, we're buddies. (laughs) Suicide Buddies. (laughs) That's the title. One of our favorite episodes that we've recorded so far is about this guy, Jan Pataki, who was a Polish aristocrat in the 19th century. Mm -hmm. And he, uh, one of the reasons it's possible that he killed himself <laughs> is that he thought he was a werewolf. Oh. Check out a clip. It also makes me think, like, we were talking about in the Norway uh, black metal episode, how, like, just the culture of your surroundings can affect you. Like, yeah. he's in a castle in Poland. He's Like, I mean, if yeah. you lived in a castle in Poland and no one knew anything about anything, you might be like, I'm a bat. I'm probably a bat. <laughs> 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 That's like literally what happened to Batman. <laughs> he literally is in his mansion. He's like, you know what? Fuck it. I'm, I'm a, a bat. bat. I'm a bat. I'm a <laughs> bat. I'm a, I'm I'm a bat. bat that helps people. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a bat that helps people. I'm a, I'm a rich... I don't know what you want from me. And uh, my, and my girlfriend, a... she's a cat. She's a cat. My she, girlfriend's she, a cat. She steals things. 
She's a woman who steals things. She's a cat. I'm a bat. I'm a bat. I help people. She's a cat. We fight a penguin. My, uh, my, 